Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The man spotted wandering the horizon was haggard, no question. His feet were bare, his coal-black hair and beard were wild and long. That much everyone agreed on. But how he behaved? Well, it seemed that was open to interpretation. Some said he had a crazy look in his eye, the kind of wild-eyed stare that people saw too often in the Wild West in the 1880s, the kind of look that served almost as a warning. I have seen and done things you can't imagine. But others said he looked peaceful and plump, or at least well-fed, which was noteworthy considering the story he told about the adventure that ended with him arriving to the camp alone and shoeless. The short version of his tale went like this. He and five men had set off through the Colorado wilderness in the dead of winter. They'd run out of food just days into the journey and began eating their shoes to survive. That led to the man's feet freezing. So, after waiting with him a few days in hopes his feet would heal so he could walk again, the other five finally left him behind with a gun and a promise to return with help. But he never saw them again. At least, that was his first story. His second was more chilling. Actually, he said, he'd left his traveling companions in hopes of finding an animal to slay and eat. But when he returned from a scouting expedition, he found four of his friends dead, brutally hacked to death by the fifth, who now came at him with a hatchet. In self-defense, the man said, he shot his last companion, and then, as his hunger and desperation grew, ate hunks of muscle and flesh from the bodies of his mates to stay alive until spring. Alfred Packer's story immediately became the stuff of legends, but it's worth noting that few legends are totally true, and plenty of people believe Packer's was a pack of lies. It would be nearly a decade before a jury would be asked to decide the outcome of one of the most sensational trials in Colorado history. If you trust the tattoo Alfred Packer had emblazoned on his arm, his name was Alfred, A-L-F-E-R-D, not the more traditional Alfred, But you'd be unwise to trust him on that front, because he wasn't much of a speller. He was born in 1842 in Pennsylvania to parents James and Esther Nay Greiner. James was a carpenter, and the couple had eight children in total. They probably spoke with something of an Appalachian twang, which meant son Alfred most often heard his name as Alfred, which is why he grew up misspelling his own name. The family moved soon after Alfred was born to Indiana, where Dad James made cabinets to support the family. Alfred was prone to seizures, for which there was no real treatment at the time. These fits would be violent and frequent and difficult to manage, but his childhood otherwise was ordinary enough that little is known about it. Biographies about him say he served a stint as an apprentice to a shoemaker, which taught him how to work with leather. 
Nothing especially noteworthy would happen in Alfred's life until the Civil War kicked off when he was 18 years old. At 19, Alfred joined the U.S. Infantry at Winona, Minnesota, after which he got his poorly spelled tattoo on his right arm. From a documentary by the Wild West Extravaganza YouTube channel. After getting this regretful tattoo, private I can't spell my name Packers, next stop was to Camp Douglas, just south of Chicago. Conditions at the camp were rough. Sometimes referred to as the Andersonville of the North. That's in reference to the Andersonville Prison, a notoriously awful prisoner of war camp in Georgia where nearly one-third of the Union soldiers imprisoned there died. It's considered the deadliest landscape of the Civil War, according to the National Park Service. Camp Douglas wasn't quite as bad, but it still wasn't good. Camp Douglas was one of the largest POW camps of the Civil War. It's also where Alfred would contract typhoid fever which, of course, is spread by eating or drinking food and or water contaminated with the feces of an infected person. This tells you all you need to know about the conditions there at Camp Douglas, right? Now, I don't know for sure that Packer got typhoid fever at Camp Douglas because that claim came from Packer himself, and we have an unreliable narrator here. This is a guy who would spend much of his life claiming to be related to Asa Packer, a businessman known as one of Pennsylvania's most prominent citizens. Asa Packer founded Lehigh University. Alfred Packer was not related to Asa Packer, and whether he was knowingly lying or had been misled to think so is unclear. All we do know is that he claimed this far and wide, and it wasn't true. What is true is that whether Alfred contracted typhoid fever there or not, Camp Douglas was infamous for its squalid conditions. Author Harold Schechter wrote that the prison's Confederate inmates came to call it 80 acres of hell. Regardless, Packer didn't stay there, or in the military in general, for very long because of his uncontrolled seizures. They would, by all accounts, knock him on his ass and leave him groggy for sometimes days afterward. In late 1862, less than a year after Alfred had joined the 16th Regiment, he received a disability discharge at Fort Ontario, New York, which read that he was, quote, incapable of performing the duties of a soldier because of epilepsy, end quote. On the form, there was a spot in which a doctor could indicate how many days the soldier had been unfit for duty. In that space, the examining physician wrote, All the time. Packer didn't want to go, evidently, and kept hopscotching the landscape to enlist in other companies, a scheme much easier back in the days before widespread telephones, much less global internet. Unfortunately for him, though, his epilepsy followed, as did some not great behavior, according to surviving documents. In November 1863, Packer's pay was docked $2.50 for, quote, plundering citizens of Nashville. Finally, in April of 1864, after being laid up for two solid months with seizures, Packer was discharged once again. The paperwork stated that he'd sometimes have more than one seizure in a day. After his military stint, Packer went west in hopes of finding gold. He landed in Colorado, where he sought the shiny stuff near Breckenridge, a town that to this day still hosts mine tours and gold panning events. While there, Packer suffered an accident, likely related to the dynamite often used in mining expeditions, which caused him to lose parts of the index and ring fingers of his left hand. 
Like so many frontiers folk who hoped to strike it rich, Packer never did. He worked consistently enough to stay afloat, but he always seemed a step behind in terms of the next big discovery. By the time he'd hit Breckenridge, the bulk of the gold was gone. He shifted gears and made his way to Bingham Canyon, Utah in the early 1870s, where he worked at copper mining until he fell ill with lead poisoning. After he recovered, he got a job about 12 miles south of Salt Lake City working in a small smelter. While there, he got such severe lead poisoning that he later said doctors told him he was likely doomed. But he fought that back and again recovered, after which he set his sights on the San Juan Mountains of Colorado. The prize in those mountains wasn't gold or copper, but silver. Packer was still in Bingham Canyon when newspaper stories began touting the San Juan Mountains as the next big thing. Packer met a man named Bob McGrew who was thinking of making a go of it, and he made a good enough impression on McGrew to convince the Oregonian to let him join. McGrew and his prospecting partner, a guy named George Tracy, had a couple of wagons drawn by four horses apiece. McGrew and Tracy had no sooner decided that they might as well pack up their Utah camp and head toward Colorado when they met a man with coal black hair who said he was hoping to do the same. Packer told them he didn't have much money, which was a problem. It not only wasn't free to pack up and move, but mining companies had what were called grub stakes. Basically, in order to be okayed to dig for ore, newcomers had to pay an entry fee. That meant Packer had to scrounge up $50, which is the equivalent of about $1,200 in today's money. But Packer promised McGrew he was good for it. Not only that, he said, but he'd work for it along the way. See, Packer told him, he'd lived and worked for years in Colorado, so he'd be a fantastic guide to have on hand. Spoiler alert. Truth was, Alfred Packer couldn't guide himself out of a damp paper sack, much less a vast wilderness. But McGrew didn't know that. He believed slick-talking Packer and said that not only could Packer tag along, but McGrew would pay Packer's grub stake in exchange for his navigational expertise. What could possibly go wrong? Traveling through the uncharted terrain of the Wild West in the late 1800s was of course fraught. Tons went wrong all the time, even for the most prepared people. Stories ran rampant about frontiersmen getting turned around and lost or hit by sudden snowstorms. Around 1860, the country was spellbound by the tale of Daniel Blue, an Illinois boy who traveled west with two brothers dreaming of finding gold in the so-called New El Dorado. After joining with other young men, they got separated and then lost, and then they began to starve. They boiled roots and grass to mix with melted snow for a meager stew, but it didn't stave off starvation. A man named Soli, who had joined the brothers, was the first to die. The brothers resisted for three days before eating him. Next, Brother Alexander died, then Brother Charles. Daniel was the only one to survive. He had eaten from the corpses of his two brothers to do so. Though he physically recovered after Arapaho men found him and nursed him back to health, he was never the same again. The McGrew expedition that Packer had joined risked the same fate, in part because Packer had padded his resume. 
He assured the crew of 21 men that he knew the land well, which gave them a false sense of confidence as they packed their provisions. The truth is, Packer had no clue about that terrain, and as a result, the men packed too lightly. Packer's ignorance became quickly clear. Not only that, but McGrew had judged him as a hearty, healthy man. But within a few days, Packer had his first of many seizures. Then Packer let slip that he had spent some time in a Utah jail, supposedly for frequenting sex workers. Plus, it sounds like he was just an unpleasant person to boot. In a letter written decades later, one of the men on the expedition, a guy named Preston Nutter, described Packer as sulky and obstinate. Wild West extravaganza again. He complained a lot and about everything and was just basically unwilling to pull his own weight. A quote-unquote whining fraud is how one of the men of the expedition would later remember Packer. Nutter said Packer would argue over anything, and he'd do it in this grating, high-pitched voice that wore on everyone's nerves. The worst part, though, was that Packer, who supposedly had been the one assuring everyone how simple an expedition they were facing, was the first to complain loudly and bitterly when the food supplies started to dwindle. I get the feeling that Alfred was the type of guy that stands uncomfortably close when he talks to you. And for sure, if he was around nowadays, he'd talk really loud over speakerphone out in public. Sounds about right. In short, Nutter said, no one really liked him, with one noteworthy exception. Other than Bob McGrew, literally nobody else was impressed by Alfred Packer. Matter of fact, the other men of the expedition could not stand the man. And I mean not at all. Apparently, McGrew felt bad for Packer because of his health issues. He witnessed one of the first seizures, during which Packer literally fell into the campfire. Soon, McGrew could see the fits coming and would help keep Packer safe during them by catching him when he fell, laying him down, and holding him still enough to ensure he didn't get hurt. The other party members felt no such obligation to help the man. According to Schechter's book, Man Eater, the Life and Legend of an American Cannibal, McGrew once called for help from his companions, but they shouted him down. You wanted him along, so you take care of him, they yelled. Things were looking bleak nearly three months into the journey. The men were discussing whether they should eat one of their horses because their food and flour had long run out, forcing them to survive for days on just chopped barley. But then something miraculous happened. On January 25, 1874, they encountered a tribe of Native Americans later known as the Ute and led by a man named Ure. Once Ure, who spoke Spanish, as did at least one of the expedition party, had heard the men's story, he felt comfortable letting them stay for the season. He led the group of men to a spot with water and wood and plenty of grass and said that they could set up camp to hunker down for the rest of winter. Which they gladly did setting up camp in various shelters, everything from tents to dugouts to crude shrub and brush-type dwellings that Packer himself took refuge in. The men were also able to trade a bit with the Ute, securing a couple of goats for food as well as some clothing, stuff like that. Ure strongly advised against going any farther until the spring thaw. The groups got along for several days, but some in the expedition were antsy. They wanted to forge ahead. Yuri told them, look, that would be foolish. The trails are buried in snow and will be until spring. Several of the group, including McGrew, thought this was great advice. 
but others were feeling lucky. Believe it or not, some of the men still wanted to push on. Even asked Ure if he'd lend some scouts to get them where they needed to go. A request that the chief wisely refused. Said that the conditions were so rough, not even a Ute would attempt to make such a journey, and he urged the men just to chill where they were for the winter. Ah, but they wouldn't listen. In early February, barely a week after they'd avoided eating their own horses to survive, a group of five men decided they knew better than the people who actually lived on the land, and they headed off. Packer was not in this group, though he had tried to join. It so happened that one of the leaders was fervently anti-Packer and threatened to shoot Packer if he didn't stay put. But Packer was determined, and a few days after that first group of five left, a second group, this time composed of six men, left the safety of the Ute's hospitality and followed suit. By the time anyone outside of that group saw Packer again, the rest of his crew would be dead. The McGrew crew, who had arrived on Ute land in February 1874, had split into three factions. One group, about half the men, decided to follow Ure's advice and stay put for the winter. The other half had, in two separate expeditions, decided to forge ahead. As Josh Daly said, The idea was to head straight for the Los Pinos Indian Agency, which I believe was the closest point of civilization. The two groups that pushed ahead were separated by several days. The first group reached Los Pinos, a government agency established via treaty after the Civil War, but only barely. They thought they'd be there in days. They didn't arrive for weeks, and when they did, they were weak and starving and near death. Turned out Yure was right when he thought that they'd be risking death to make the journey when they did. Now, that first group had no way of knowing that a second group was on their heels, and as such, they didn't tell anyone to be on the lookout for more men. No one knew another crew that included Alfred Packer should be arriving soon after. So when Packer finally arrived months after the first crew, his former expedition mates were flabbergasted. What are you doing here? Did you come here alone? No, Packer said. He explained that he had left the Ute camp months earlier with five companions, and remember, these five were five men whom crew number one had also traveled with, so they were borderline friends at that point. Packer said he had brought with him George Noon, a teenager, Israel Swan, an older man rumored to be carrying thousands in cash, James Humphrey, Frank Miller, a butcher from Germany, and a stout, hot-tempered man named Shannon Wilson Bell. They went by foot because the snow was too deep for their horses. Talk about ignoring a red flag. As for provisions, they had brought little food. Packer estimated they'd left with enough food for a week for a single man. Beyond that, they had two rifles, one pistol, a hatchet, a couple of knives, and a handful of matches. No flint or any other way to start a fire, very little ammunition, no heavy coats, no snowshoes. As Packer started to tell his story, the agency men served him whiskey and, soon, food. Whether he seemed famished or not at this point is up for debate, as I said in the intro. It depends whose version of the tale you believe. But what makes this story especially hard to tell is that Packer's own versions kept changing. He initially claimed that he got afflicted with snow blindness, at which time the rest of the men abandoned him, leaving him with just a Winchester rifle. 
As such, he had to make it out of the wilderness alone, living mostly on rosebuds he found along the way. The men of the agency found the rosebuds claim especially strange, seeing as how Alfred did not appear all that starved. He looked like a wild man who had just emerged from the mountains, sure, but he wasn't skin and bones. That was version number one. But remember, some of the people hearing this tale knew the men he had described and straight up didn't believe this version at all. For starters, small things didn't add up. For example, Packer at first said his travel buddies only left him with a rifle, yet one of the earlier crewmates noticed he had a skinning knife that had belonged to the missing butcher. Packer said the butcher, a man named Miller, had jammed the knife into a tree and left it, which just didn't ring true to anyone who knew the guy. Miller was a butcher by trade. Why would he abandon the knife he always kept on him? Packer was raising eyebrows, but at this point, the doubts were more rumblings than accusations. Packer told people he was broke, and the agency's justice agreed to buy his rifle for $10 just to help him out. Packer took that money and left the agency for the nearby town of Sawatch, Colorado, supposedly en route to Pennsylvania. In this new town, he again told his tale of woe, but it struck people that he didn't seem as down on his luck as his harrowing story suggested. A saloon owner said he dropped $100 in his place alone. Packer even lost nearly $40 during a single card game, which on its own is four times what he got for selling that gun that he had claimed was his only thing of value in all the world. Now, remember that half of the original expedition crew stayed with the Ute. Their plan had been to wait out the winter and then travel when the weather wasn't so brutal. Soon after Packer arrived in Sawatch, some of those men began trickling in, including Bob McGrew, Packer's sort of protector. The timing of the arrival was sort of like in the movie Home Alone, when the mom insists on going ahead to try and reach Kevin, flying standby and trucking with some random polka band. And then in the end, it was kind of pointless because she arrived just minutes ahead of the rest of the family. The ones who'd been patient showed up in Swatch just days after the antsy ones. When they heard the story Packer had been telling, plus the saloon owner's tale of a wild spending spree in town, they were like, oh, hell no, this does not sound right. A man named General Charles Adams, who oversaw the nearby Indian agency, decided it was time to sort things out from a YouTube history channel called Bad Things in History. Adams convened a council to discuss how to resolve the situation. Before they could start the meeting, two Ute tribesmen came into the building. They were holding pieces of dried human flesh. The tribesmen came upon it while hunting. Alfred started to cry. Okay, he said. I had lied before. My travel mates didn't just leave me in the woods. Packer started begging for mercy and began his confession ominously, saying, quote, it would not be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. He said the men ran out of food within days, growing so hungry that they cooked their own moccasins. As their hunger grew, he said, expedition mate Shannon Bell teetered closer and closer to madness. The oldest member of the crew died of exposure, and while the surviving five tried to resist, they couldn't find any wild animals to slay. So they ate them. The survivors forged ahead until the next one died, and then the next. One by one, they succumbed, and one by one, those left ate the fallen, until finally it was just Bell and Packer. Bell had been unstable for weeks by now, 
And though they had agreed not to eat each other, one night, Bell attacked and Packer retaliated. He killed Bell in self-defense, he said, and ate Bell's remains only because he had to. Stories like these weren't uncommon, but Packer didn't have a huge fan club, so some were suspicious. They figured they could verify his tale by simply finding the closest scene he had described, the one where Bell had been killed in self-defense. If they found things the way Packer had described, it would serve as corroboration to his tale. A search party was arranged. They were to head to the area where Packer claimed he and Bell camped out for a few days, a big lake some 50 or so miles from Los Pinos, and Alfred would be forced to guide them there. Things didn't go so smoothly, though. You had a few members of the original expedition, including Nutter, who hated Packer. You had a few Ute scouts and the agency constable, a guy named Louder. A few days into the journey, Louder noticed that Alfred had that old skin and knife that he took from Miller concealed on his person. Louder demanded that he hand it over, and Packer sort of snapped and came rushing at the constable, blade in hand. This attack was easily thwarted, and Packer was both disarmed and subdued. As much as some in the party would have happily strung Packer up at this point, the cooler heads of the search party prevailed. Packer instead was escorted back to Sawatch and put in a jail cell while the rest continued scouring the land for the scene of Bell's demise. Eventually, they did indeed find such a scene, but it didn't match Packer's tale at all. Instead, they found the bodies of all five men in the same location. At least four had been hacked in the skull, all appeared partially eaten, their flesh and muscle removed by a knife. They could tell this by cut marks they could see on the bones. One of the corpses was missing his head. The group buried the men in a way they felt more proper, and then rushed back to town to confront Packer with their findings. But they were met with a shock. Packer had been set free, or he broke free. It's not totally clear how it happened. Some believe he found sympathy with the men guarding his cell, and they let him go. Others claim he broke himself out. Either way, he was in the wind. To people who had already come to doubt Alfred Packer's explanation as to what happened to his five travel companions in the winter of 1874, his escape from jail further proved that he was an evil jackass. Clearly, they argued, the many men who had disliked him while traveling and Bob McGrew's crew had been right all along. He was a 'er ne'er-do-well, a criminal, a creep, and apparently a murderer and cannibal. He'd asked too many questions about how much money the men were carrying as they had traveled, and now the survivors were sure that he had dragged five men with him on his ill-fated journey for the sole purpose of killing them and then robbing and feeding off their corpses. Nine years passed. Alfred Packer became the stuff of legends. Sometimes word would spread that he'd been spotted here or there, but by the time these rumors could be checked out by someone who knew the man's face, the suspect was long gone. Many accepted that Packer must have died somewhere. Surely a guy like that, one who couldn't navigate for shit, who had epilepsy in an era with no effective treatment, wouldn't last long in the wild. But then one day, a guy named John Cabazon met a man who struck him as awfully familiar. Cabazon was a Frenchman who went by the oh-so-creative nickname French, and he'd been part of that original 21-member expedition with Bob McGrew. 
Cabazon was working a different job nearly a decade later near Fort Fetterman, Wyoming, when he was introduced to a man who said his name was John Schwartz. Schwartz had two characteristics that made Cabazon a little suspicious. For starters, if you'll remember, Packer had lost parts of two fingers years before in a San Juan Mountains expedition, and this Schwartz fellow had an identically mangled left hand. Second, he had the same distinctive high-pitched whine of a voice. Instead of confronting John Schwartz and asking straight out if he was Alfred Packer, Cabazon played it cool and just chatted with him, not letting on that he was suspicious in the slightest. The longer the two men talked, the more certain French was that Schwartz was really Packer. As soon as he could, French spread word that he believed he knew where Packer was, after which Packer was arrested and taken by train to Denver. There, he was reunited with General Adams, who was sure he would be able to verify whether this Schwartz fellow was indeed the infamous Alfred Packer, which he did. Packer didn't deny it. Instead, he offered version number three of what had happened those many years earlier in the wilderness. Once again, he explained how bad off he and the men were, you know, snowed in and living off of rosebuds, how they had to eat their boots, told how some of the men were so hungry they were crying out in pain. Finally, Packer took the rifle and he went to go look for help. When he came back, he said, he found Bell cooking over the campfire. Bell had a wild look in his eyes and rushed him, which was a bad idea since Packer had the only available gun. He fired, killing Bell, and then hatcheted his head for good measure. But then he got concerned. Where were the others? Why had no one come to help him? It had been dark when he arrived and tough to get his bearings, but now that things were calming, he could see the bodies. Packer then noticed what Bell had been cooking in the campfire. It was meat from one of the slain men's legs. Packer tried to eat it, but became violently ill, so he stopped. But after a few days, his will gave out. Each day that followed, Packer said that he tried to get away to leave camp, but each day he would end up returning and dying on human flesh yet again. There was $70 he collected among the dead men, which he pocketed with his own 20. Eventually, the weather broke and he was able to leave carrying some of the meat with him and eating as he traveled and finally discarding what was left as soon as he got to the agency. When he was asked why this confession was so different than the earlier two, he claimed that he wasn't himself at the time that he couldn't be held responsible for anything that he might have said. Packer was put on trial for one of the cases, a strategic move on the part of prosecutors who wanted to hold on to the option of trying him again if their first case failed, and he was found guilty of premeditated murder. He was sentenced to death. But he wouldn't hang for the crime because there had been a weird period in Colorado history in which murder convictions were precarious entirely because lawmakers had worded something wrong in one law that overturned another law. It gets a little complicated, but the gist is this. Colorado was still a territory, not a state, when its first murder statute went on the books in 1870. Five years later, an attorney found a loophole in the statute that saved a client from being executed because the law was worded to say that someone was only eligible for the death penalty if a jury found him guilty. This clever attorney avoided that by having his client plead guilty, meaning no jury was involved and therefore, by law, he wasn't eligible for the death penalty. That caused an uproar, especially because the crime this guy had been charged with was so awful. Four bodies, 
three of whom were children, had been discovered brutally slain and mutilated in a Denver basement. A guy named Filomino Galati was the culprit, and his admission spared his life, much to the dismay of town folk. One thing hasn't changed about the legal system in all these years, though, and that's that we're all at the mercy of our lawmakers when it comes to laws, and it took five long years before legislators replaced the 1870 law with a new law in 1881. But they wrote that one wrong, too, failing to include verbiage to allow crimes occurring between 1870 and 1881 to still be tried under the old law, meaning there essentially was no law against murder in the 11-year window. As such, the Supreme Court reversed Packer's conviction of premeditated murder. He instead would have to be tried for manslaughter because that law hadn't been written so stupidly. So death was off the table when Packer was retried in August 1886. This time, he was tried on all five of his comrades' deaths at once, found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, and sentenced to the maximum available, which was eight years per victim, to be served consecutively. Because Packer was already in his 40s, this was essentially a life term without technically being one. Years passed, and public sentiment shifted. A young Colorado journalist born Lionel Ross Campbell, but who went by the pen name Polly Pry, had made waves by breaking a big story about the U.S. planning to build a canal in Panama. The story made her one of the most well-known newspaper women in the country, though her real interest was in exposing social injustices. As such, while working for the Denver Post, Pry interviewed the infamous cannibal packer behind bars at the turn of the century and began, with her newspaper's backing, a crusade to set him free. Pry wrote story after story, insisting that Packer had been forced to do what he'd done to survive, that he'd only killed Bell, and that Bell had killed the other victims. Packer's descent into cannibalism, Polly argued, was one of desperation for which he should not be punished, or at the very least, for which he'd been punished enough. Price stories didn't succeed in getting Packer a pardon, as she'd hoped, but they did help get him paroled. Alfred Packer was finally paroled from prison on February 8th, 1901, at 59 years of age. The governor of Colorado actually signed the parole on his last day in office as his last official act as governor. The original crime had been committed nearly three decades prior. After nine years on the lam and two trials, Packer had spent 18 years total behind bars. Part of the thinking in paroling Packer was that his health was failing. After his release, he moved into a cabin in what's now Jefferson County, Colorado, and briefly worked as a guard at the Denver Post. His neighbors would reportedly come to love him. He would supposedly regale neighborhood children about his days in the Wild West, which by then had been romanticized beyond recognition. But none of this did much to outright settle any of the controversy surrounding Packer or the death of his mates. He's a folk hero to some. His name has appeared on cookbooks, his story parodied in Trey Parker and Matt Stone's Cannibal the Musical, which predated South Park by about four years. But Packer's grave has also been so targeted by vandals over the years that officials covered it with concrete just to protect it. To research this case, I read Harold Schechter's book, Maneater, The Life and Legend of an American Cannibal, 
read Packer's confessions and a chunk of his case file, read contemporary news coverage, and really enjoyed Wild West Extravaganza by Josh Daly, who okayed me using bits of his take on the case to help tell this story. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.